Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different than the rest. The last three episodes have been dedicated to studying slavery in ancient Rome, including gladiators, as well as the third servile rebellion led by Spartacus. Today, I thought it would be fun to talk about the Praetorian Guard, the infamous royal guards of the emperor, who through power creep went from loyal bodyguards to Roman police force to secret police force, and then eventually they became the kingmakers themselves, eventually commanding the ability to sell the emperorship to the highest bidder. In episode 14 of this show on Roman civics, we spoke of an office in the Roman Republic called Praetors. Praetors were the two military commanders who took their orders from the two consuls. In past episodes, we've mentioned various Praetors, like last episode when we spoke of Gaius Claudius Glaber, who unsuccessfully led a militia against Spartacus. Now, the Praetors, while on campaign, often worked in a commander's tent known as a Praetorium. The Praetorium was also occupied by the Praetor's staff and bodyguards. These small escorts of guards became known as the Praetorians. Mark Antony, Scipio Africanus, and Lucius Cornelius Sola all had their own small contingents of Praetorian guards, but during the Roman civil wars, the amount of bodyguarding dramatically escalated. Each leader had to have their own troop of guards to protect themselves from any further backstabbing assassinations to prevent what happened to dear old Julius. When Augustus won out the civil war and became the first emperor, he took the bodyguarding force to a whole new paranoid extreme. In 27 BC, he created a permanent force totaling nine cohorts, approximately 4,500 men. Their mission was to protect him and the royal family. This force was now officially called the Praetorian Guard. For comparison, the US Secret Service, coincidentally, has the exact same number of troops, with 3,200 special agents for personnel protection, and 1,300 uniformed division officers for protecting buildings, a total of 4,500. Now, before I go on to explain more about the Praetorian Guard, I want to go on a little tangent here that'll give you a bit of context about a common theme of the Guard's existence. You see, in addition to hiring the 4,500 Praetorian Guards, Emperor Augustus also hired 500 German barbarians to protect the Emperor. This tradition was carried on by his successors as well. And this tradition lives on in a strange way with the Pope's Swiss Guard today. Now, why would Augustus and his successors want 500 to 750 German barbarians to be their personal bodyguards? Well, first of all, these warriors were eminently qualified. They had proven their prowess in battle and wars against the Romans many times. They were also excellent horsemen and swimmers. They could swim across rivers in full armor and weapons, and they were fanatically loyal to the man who defeated them and then spared their lives. But there were qualified soldiers in Rome, so it also was certainly a power move. Augustus was taking the Romans' most dangerous and ferocious foe, the Batavi tribe from the Netherlands region, and showing the world that he could tame them and make them serve Rome. But the third reason is that those 500 Germans did not care about Roman politics. They couldn't be bribed or persuaded by the schemes of conspiring senators and consuls. The Praetorian, on the other hand, could be corrupted. 
and so these German guards acted as a counter or check on the power of the Praetorian guards. The Praetorians, meanwhile, were all local boys, recruited from the imperial heartlands of Rome. Since the Romans had a tradition that no commander could have an army inside the city of Rome, the Praetorians paid lip service to this ideal. They were commanded to wear civilian clothes when in Rome, and these were not any ordinary drab civilian clothes, however. The guard were allowed to wear the extremely rare and valuable purple-dyed clothes of royalty. In the Republic, only senators could wear purple. With this new empire, only members of the royal family and their Praetorian guards could. The precious purple dye was painstakingly extracted from the mucus of predatory sea snails and was worth half a year's salary. And for these guards, that was a lot. The guards were paid over three times the amount of their legionary counterparts. They were also given tax immunity on their lands and they were permitted to serve only 16 years instead of the usual 25 before retiring. Earlier retirement meant that they could go on to become politicians or military commanders at a much younger age. Since there wasn't a ton for the Praetorians to do most of the time, they eventually merged with the Roman police force to become the only law enforcement body inside the city. They also helped out the Vigiles, where fires had occurred, and so they were often seen handling crowd control at large events like the circus or fights in the arena. They were also the only people in Rome allowed to carry weapons, and only the two Praetorian prefects could bear arms in the presence of the emperor. With these changes, they increased their size up to 14 cohorts. It was at this time they built their famous barracks and fort, the Castra Praetoria, right outside the city in a nearby suburb. This is where most of them lived and worked. Think of it as a kind of... Fortress Inquisitorius, like in Star Wars, but with a less silly name and a better location. And speaking of Star Wars, did you know the shrouded red cloaked figures that follow Emperor Palpatine around are actually called the Praetorian Guard? Pretty cool. Anyway, when the Roman Emperor was out on a campaign, many of the Praetorians left their cushy homes in the Roman suburbs to protect their leader out on the battlefield. In battle, the Praetorians had their own standard, which bore the symbol of the scorpion. They had distinctive shields, which bore the lightning of Jupiter, and they had their own unique uniforms. AboutHistory.com explains that they had helmets with a fluffy feather crest, a muscular cuirass, one of those pieces of armor that gives you metal pecs and abs, and beneath all of that they wore the same leather and metal plates typical of other Roman legionaries. Above the armor, they wore an extra tunic that protected the metal from sun and rain. This tunic was portrayed as purple in the movie Gladiator, and it looks pretty awesome. The Praetorian trumpeters wore lion skins over their helmets to denote their special status. Other army trumpeters had to wear bear or wolf skins. When they weren't policing the streets of Rome or protecting the emperor in the fields of Gaul, what did they do for fun? Well, apparently, to demonstrate their martial prowess, the Praetorian Guard would actually participate in the Gladiator games sometimes. They often did wild beast hunts, and according to History.com, quote, they played a notorious role in Naumachia, or staged sea battle, hosted by Emperor Claudius in AD 52. The spectacle saw as many as 19,000 men and some 100 boats clash in a mock naval engagement on the Fucine Lake. 
Most of the participants were prisoners and slaves, and the Praetorians, armed with catapults and ballistae, surrounded the battle on rafts to add to the mayhem and prevent any of the condemned from escaping. Now that we've covered some details about who the Praetorians were, what their job responsibilities included, and what privileges they had, let's dive into their history. By the end of their history, at the end of the Roman Empire, the name Praetorians became synonymous with treasonous conspirators. But before they earned this reputation, some historians contend they had a period of usefulness in the first 200 years of the empire. AboutHistory.com explains, During this time, they overthrew cruel, weak, and unpopular emperors, supporting only the strong and popular. Defending them, they expanded their power, restraining the riots of the Roman crowds and intrigues in the Senate. The Praetorian Guard granted the empire stability, contributing to the Pax Romana period. To me, though, this is a bit of a warped perspective. Personally, I would not want the emperor's bodyguards uh, to kill the emperor at will, and I don't want them to be responsible for picking new emperors, as this leads to power being concentrated into their hands. Just because they've picked some good eggs doesn't mean I'm going to always trust them. And sure enough, eventually the Praetorians did get super corrupt. You see, Praetorians had a mandate to seek out any threat to the emperor. And so according to History.com, to accomplish that mandate, quote, the Praetorians were known to engage in espionage, intimidation, arrests, and killings to protect the interests of the Roman emperor. For clandestine operations, they may have employed a special wing of troops known as speculatores, formerly a reconnaissance corps under the Roman Republic. By the imperial era, this unit had graduated to serving as couriers and intelligence operatives in the service of the Caesar. Speculatores and other members of the Praetorians would disguise themselves as ordinary citizens at gladiator contests, theatrical performances, and protests to monitor and arrest anyone who criticized the emperor. They also kept tabs on suspected enemies of the state, and in some cases, they even secretly executed those judged to be an imminent threat to the emperor or his policies, close quote. Justice Robert H. Jackson, a 20th century American lawyer who was chief prosecutor in the Nuremberg trials and later a Supreme Court justice, warned of these kinds of activities. Quote, those who begin coercive elimination of dissent soon find themselves exterminating dissenters. Compulsory unification of opinion achieves only the unanimity of the graveyard, close quote. And so it was with the Praetorian Guard. Historian Guy de la Bédue declared, Augustus created potentially the most dangerous institution the Roman world had ever seen. 68 years after their founding, in AD 41, the Praetorians got their first taste of emperor blood. They brutally murdered Augustus's great-grandson, Emperor Caligula, after he humiliated them. With Caligula, even though I disagree with his guards killing him, at least they could justify it since Caligula was a notoriously bad emperor, proclaiming himself to be the Jewish messiah, having incestuous relationships with his siblings, and making his horse a senator. But it was all downhill from here for the Praetorians. Claudius was selected by the Praetorians to take over from Caligula, and he wisely gave a cash bonus to the Praetorians. The Praetorians loved this idea. They loved it so much it became a tradition. 
Except, unlike your tradition of making gravy at Thanksgiving or dressing up as fat Spider-Man for Halloween, this tradition had the threat of violence attached to it. Claudius's son Nero was another lousy emperor, and so Nymphidius Sibinus, deputy prefect of the guard, convinced his men to abandon Nero, stating that Galba, the next emperor, would pay them 10 years wages for doing so. Sure enough, the guards abandoned Nero as rival armies circled him, and Nero was forced to commit suicide. But then a funny thing happened. Emperor Galba did not pay the wages Sabinus had promised, nor did he promote Sabinus to prefect for his help in acquiring the throne. Sabinus grew bitter and resentful, and so he gave a speech to the guards, telling them that he was Caligula's secret son and that he should be emperor. The other Praetorians got nervous at this, and so they stabbed Sabinus to death. Even though they realized Sabinus was a thief and a liar, they still demanded the money that Sabinus had promised from Galba. Galba refused, and so the Praetorian guard killed him in the forum, six months after they had abandoned Nero. After this year of four emperors came Vespasian, his two sons, and then the five good emperors, ending with Marcus Aurelius. Their reigns marked over a hundred years of relative peace and stability. Of them, Machiavelli declared, quote, These emperors had no need of praetorian cohorts or of countless legions to guard them, but were defended by their own good lives, the goodwill of their subjects, and the attachment of the Senate, close quote. As Machiavelli alludes to here, the Praetorian did not have as overt a role, suppressing dissent during this time. Nevertheless, they were still the secret power behind the throne. For example, after tolerating Nerva, it was the Praetorian guard who decided that he would be succeeded by Trajan. But by 182, the Praetorians were back to their old tricks. They were part of a conspiracy to murder Commodus when he was only 18. The conspiracy failed, and Commodus spent the next 10 years in a whirlwind of fighting back against them with a vengeance. But the megalomania and paranoia eventually sunk in for Commodus. He grew suspicious of his own mistress, his chamberlain, and his hand-picked Praetorian prefect. He wrote their names down on his murders to-do list, and once they saw their names on his list, they paid Commodus's wrestling buddy to strangle him to death in his bathtub. After Commodus died, the Praetorians rushed to the estate of Pertinax, the governor of Rome. Naturally, Pertinax assumed that the guards were there to kill him. To his surprise, they were actually there to promote him. They whisked him away to the Castra Praetoria and pronounced him the new emperor. But this didn't last long. Upon taking the emperorship, Pertinax realized quickly that Rome had a spending problem. The treasury was nearly empty. The legions were being overpaid, and financial ruin was on the horizon. Trying to stave off this doom, Pertinax, like Marcus Aurelius, was one of the few emperors who fought back against overspending and hyperinflation. He actually increased the silver purity of the denarius from 74% to 87%, making everyone's money worth more. Pertinax also didn't give the Praetorians their customary gift of a whole bunch of money and bribes. He also tried to reform their discipline, to make them more honorable and in line with the military's discipline. Machiavelli writes that Pertinax's attempt to reform soldiers that had become accustomed to live licentiously was a mistake. 
They could not endure the honest life to which Pertinax reduced them. On March 28, 193 AD, Pertinax was at his palace when a contingent of 300 Praetorian guards rushed the gates. The palace guards on duty did not resist. Pertinax's advisors encouraged him to flee, but he attempted to reason with the disgruntled soldiers instead. He was almost successful at persuading before one very angry one just struck him down on the spot. This was where the Praetorians hit a low point. This assassination wasn't planned, and so they didn't have a successor ready to go. So to figure out who would be in charge of one of the largest, most powerful, and advanced societies in the world, they held an auction. Following a brief bidding war between Julianus and Pertinax's father-in-law, the Praetorians sold control of the empire to Julianus for the enormous sum of 25,000 Roman sesterci per man. This was five years' pay in advance for each Praetorian guard. Unfortunately, Julianus didn't make it past June. The Senate, the people, and the legions were furious at the indignity of their country being sold to the highest bidder. Legions immediately turned around and began marching on Rome. The Praetorians cowardly abandoned Julianus once General Septimus Severus's troops entered the city. Severus offered pardons to any Praetorians who would give him information on who was involved in the conspiracy to kill Pertinax and auction the emperorship. Many Praetorians accepted this deal and the perpetrators were executed. Julianus was also killed and Severus took over as emperor. Of the guard, Severus said, It is impossible to think of any penalty to impose that fits your crimes. You each deserve to die 1,000 times. Severus ended up firing every single guard and replacing them with soldiers from his legions. Bafflingly, the Praetorian Guard lived on for a hundred more years after this, and they still got up to their shenanigans. They took part in the murder of Emperor Caracalla in 217, Elagabalus in 222, and Pupienus and Balbinus in 238. This tells me that it wasn't just the people in the guard who were bad, the institution itself was rotten to the core. History.com describes what finally ended the guard's reign of terror. Quote, In 306, the Praetorians tried to play the role of kingmaker one last time when they installed the usurper Maxentius as the western emperor in Rome. Following a dizzying chain of civil wars and rival claims to the throne, Maxentius and his Praetorians were confronted by the Emperor Constantine at 312's Battle of Milvian Bridge. While the Praetorians supposedly made a valiant last stand along the Tiber River, they were soundly defeated and Maxentius was killed. Convinced the Praetorians could no longer be trusted, Constantine disbanded the unit once and for all, reassigned its members to the outskirts of the empire, and oversaw the destruction of their barracks at the Castra Praetoria. Going back to Justice Jackson, he declared, quote, The priceless heritage of our society is the unrestricted constitutional right of each member to think as he will. Thought control is a copyright of totalitarianism, and we have no claim to it, close quote. Organizations like the Praetorian Guard that seek to control who's the leader of the country and then work to silence any opposition to that leader are the tools of totalitarians. The Soviet Cheka, or KGB, 
the Nazi Gestapo, and the Chinese Communists Intelligence Service, which they call the Teeth of the Dragon, are all in the same vein as the authoritarian Praetorian Guards. They call themselves intelligence agencies, but they are not. They are always weapons. The Soviets called the KGB the party's sword and shield. They only exist to hurt whomever the party designates as enemies, and they hide the crimes of whoever are the party's friends. Recognizing the danger of these weapons to backfire, like the Praetorians, all of these regimes constantly have to purge these agencies regularly. The power to hurt people unaccountably is tyranny's quintessential tool, and regular purges keeps that tool sharp and pointing towards the party's enemies. So, is there a place for secret armed groups in a free society? Can we have an FBI, CIA, MI6, Federal Intelligence Service, or Australian Secret Intelligence Service? Machiavelli noted that for a leader to oversee organizations such as this, quote, hatred is acquired as much as by good works as by bad ones. Therefore, as I said before, a prince wishing to keep his state is very often forced to do evil. For when that body is corrupt whom you think you have need to maintain yourself, you have to submit to its humors and to gratify them, and then good works will do you harm, close quote. In effect, Machiavelli recommends that if you find yourself in charge of a corrupt secret organization and you don't want to be worm food, do the evils that they require of you and then they will be kept at bay and your power will be secure. On the other extreme, during the Virginia ratification debate over the U.S. Constitution in 1787, Representative John Dawson argued that it should be unlawful for the U.S. to have a permanent armed group of any size. He declared, quote, it was this, sir, which enabled the Praetorian bands of Rome, whose number scarcely amounted to 10,000, after having violated the sanctity of the throne by the atrocious murder of an excellent emperor, Pertinax, to dishonor the majesty of it by proclaiming that the Roman Empire, the mistress of the world, was to be disposed of to the highest bidder at public auction, and to their licentious frenzy may be attributed the first cause of the decline and fall of that mighty empire. We ought, therefore, strictly to guard against the establishment of an army. Close quote. So between these two extremes, a leader can either do what they know is wrong and make war and conspiracies to gratify their bands of secret spies and assassins, or they can abolish any and all professional armed groups in their country altogether. Personally, I think there is a middle ground where you don't have to tolerate evil and corruption, but you can still have armed professionals protecting your rights and property, and yes, sometimes even keeping secrets. I think that through transparency and routine declassification of secrets, I think we can hold our secret agencies accountable. Through frequent changes of leadership spurred through democratic processes, I think we can keep them in line with the people. Like the Batavi, we can impose our own checks and balances to limit the scope and power of the secret agencies. The judicial system should be the first line of defense, which means we can't let there be secret special courts that these agencies can use. And they shouldn't have their own special laws, like how in America it's a felony to lie to the feds. All constitutional rights, like the presumption of innocence, the right to a lawyer, right to a fair trial, right to not incriminate yourself, all must be protected when dealing with federal servants. The next line of defense should be the press and savvy newsreaders. 
they should take every statement from these agencies who are trained to lie and subvert with a grain of salt by default. Using anonymous sources familiar with the matter should be the exception for news stories, not the rule. Finally, the last line of defense against these agencies is a heavily armed populace. Around the city of Rome, there was a barrier you could not cross while carrying a weapon. This meant that you were at the mercy of the bandits who would rob you, and at the mercy of the Praetorian thugs who would not hesitate to question, arrest, or even kill you if you questioned the emperor. Only they were allowed to question the emperor. The Praetorians would not have been able to execute citizens and emperors at will if they weren't the only ones in the whole city with weapons. And that concludes our episode today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a five-star review for us and share this with a friend. For more information on this topic, check out the sources in the description. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you.